Can I say we'll give it up? Christopher Hill. Yes, sir. Welcome to the podcast. Brian, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, I've never seen Christopher spell with a K. What's up with that? Um, so when I was born, my mother wasn't sure, or my parents weren't sure if I was going to be a boy or a girl. Mm-hmm. So they thought of Kristen with mm-hmm. a K. Mm-hmm. And then, um, when obviously, I was a boy. And Christopher is, I've got some Danish blood from my uh, grandfather's side and my mother's side. And... Um, yeah, that's like the Danish spelling that we know from like Chris Kringle. Oh, sure. Right. All right. So, K-R-I-S-T-O-F-E-R. Yeah. 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 Um, do you know anything more about that Danish side? Um, sure. So it's really interesting because a lot of our, our family history has come about from individuals' curiosity in the family of like, oh, what about like my great-grandmother's Carrillo. Uh, my great grandfather Esteban and Felipe Carrillo, and they were from Guatemala, huh. um, and came to America. Um, so that ties into the whole Spanish, uh, Sephardic, and Gitano side, as well as my great grandmother was Ochoa, um, which their family lineage originated in uh, Yucatan near Chichen Itza. Uh-huh. So there's Mayan and Aztecan blood that I also have. On my mom's side, her father was Mormon raised. So of course the whole family is documented through the Mormon tree. We mm-hmm. go onto the Mormon site and you mm-hmm. know they're very freakish and methodical about documenting everything. Um so yeah, there's that that Danish side and his father came to America from Denmark and and built a life and hence, you know, the emergence of that side of the family. Mm-hmm. And um my dad's side uh from his mother Swiss Hmm. The the Vice family, hmm. W E I S S. So there's mm-hmm. a whole side of that, and then a little bit of everything. Yeah, there's 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 a little mix of stuff. <laughs> quite quite the mutt, you know, <laughs> from Spanish to Sephardic to Mayan to Danish to, yeah, to Swiss. Yeah, so runs the gamut. Did you um did you grow up here? Were you born here? I was born in um, Summit, New Jersey, and I grew up in Maplewood, New Jersey. And Maplewood is is exactly what it sounds like. Um, Trees lined with just maple trees and oaks everywhere, old yeah. growth. And I went to high school with Zach Braff, hmm. uh, Lauren Hill also. Hmm. Um, she was two years ahead of me. Same high school? Same high school. Cool. Columbia High School. Wow. So Garden State, you know, that, yeah. that movie is Love that movie. basically about where I grew up. Okay. Because Zach was, you know, and I knew him when I was younger. And really? Up. Yeah. We, <laughs> we hung a lot. And uh, like my high school graduation, General Schwarzkopf. Um, Elizabeth Shue, Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. Um, her brother Andrew Shue was my soccer coach, hmm. and he was on Melrose Place and all that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. he was a legendary soccer player. Really? Yeah. And he was All State, All America, and he went to Africa to play professionally. And then he came back, and his sister's like, "Hey, you should get into film and blah 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 blah." So Melrose no Place. But he started coaching at Columbia High School, so I had the opportunity to have him as my freshman coach. Cause crazy, crazy lineage of. Uh, soccer at columbia high school as well as ultimate frisbee was created really high school in the 70s yeah and so i was a lacrosse player yeah me too playing sports great Uh, you're a lacrosse player (laughs) (laughs) that makes i feel like it's super new england though you know like you come out here and you're like lacrosse you know i know but i think you know that's because people like us we 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 know how to take a beating right and get back on lacrosse you pick up the biggest stick that's lying around (laughs) you whack you you beat the shit out of the next guy or get beat with totally (laughs) so yeah that that's that's a little bit and tennis i was a big tennis player player yeah um, do you have uh siblings i have a sibling yeah my my sister um ashley uh she lives in california and when we were younger we had two foster children that lived with us for four years demetrius and megan african-american they were born um prematurely like crack babies basically uh, they came from from newark and, and broken homes foster homes and we had them in our family for four years too so we had a big family unit throughout high school cool cool um, let's go early, um, musical memories, like sure. maybe a, a record that really inspired you or, or maybe just that moment where, you know, you, you kind of recognize it, you know, it's not just something playing in the background, totally. you, you kind of focus in on it and let's start there with some, with some early records and, and maybe perfect. Inspiring. Okay, this is great. Um, so as a kid, um, we had this a big living room area with um you know fireplace and my mom had this huge window with all of her plants um 
and she had brought a lot of these plants from California and some of them are for when we were born and spider plants, all this crazy stuff. Anyway, techniques, 1200 Marantz tube. My dad would sit and read the New York times in his chair and play Mozart. Hmm. He would play Bach. He would play, um, that's just the start. So I would be building with my Lincoln logs or any type of creative things with my hands. I'd be laying on the floor or doing homework. And this was like a huge part of from nursery school to fifth grade. And we would just sit and listen to records. And I remember my dad had 45s. He had a great collection. And I remember when I was old enough to put the needle onto the record mm-hmm. and um, without supervision. Yeah. Well, he was, you know, that, <laughs> that came later, you know, it started with, and, um, my dad and I went to the store and we got Michael Jackson thriller. Wow. And, uh, yeah, just to put that, you know, that yeah. whole, that record just, that blew my mind. Oh yeah. And then figuring out how to change the speed with the 45s. Um, my dad was a huge fan of the police and stuff like that. Um, sending out an SOS. That's definitely one that I remember. Um, and in that room we had a piano. So even at, you know, three years old, about three years old was when we started learning about tennis and going to the court with my dad and playing. Um, we started skiing at that time too, four years old and piano. My first approach to the piano was taking my little cowboy guns and beating the crap out of the piano, which freaked my mom out because they're ivory keys, you know, so right, still right. chips on that oh, piano yeah. to this day. Um, and I started taking play- piano lessons at like four years old. Uh-huh. And so that all kind of tied together with listening to classical, I mean, Mozart and Chopin and just whenever I hear it, it just takes me to a really good place. Uh-huh. You know? How long did you continue with piano? Mm. From like four to about eight years old. Mm-hmm. And um, I did some competitions and recitals. I'd have my little suit on, you know, and get my little award pins for playing and did like some Yamaha showcases and stuff. Um, but, you know, I'm sure like you and you could relate and being lacrosse players were very resistant to authority. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had a Russian teacher. Oh, God. And, you know, she would have a little pencil and kind of knock my knuckles right. if my positioning wasn't wrong. And, I'd be playing something you know, like a nocturne and she'd be like, what? That's not on the page. Ah. Like, right. But this is what I want to play. Right, right, so right. there was always that kind of, no, this is what you should be playing. And right. I eventually stopped, you know, because, um, I wanted to play what I wanted to play. So. Yeah. A very similar story. I, I took piano for a couple years and, um, I never, she really tried to teach me how to read sheet music and, sure. and, and, and you know, looking back on it, should I have spent more time on it? Probably. Totally. I hear you. You know, yeah. but I was just not, <laughs> I had other things to do, you know. Right. <laughs> so she'd come in or I'd come into her place and, and, and she'd say, all right, well, did you practice? I said, yeah, of course I practice. I, I love playing. Right. And uh, same shit. She's like, okay, go to the A section and play the A section. And I'm like, mm. I don't know what that is. <laughs> just like start it and I'll finish it kind of thing. Right. You know? Anyway, that didn't last very long. And I, and I, I heard i really had to i really had to pressure her because you know she was like teaching me like um bella bar talk and the shit that i just was not into i was like i want to play billy joel i want to play scott joplin something that i don't know has some fuck a soul in i don't even know how whatever yeah was you were connecting with yeah yeah, and uh it never happened and that's when i picked up the (laughs) guitar you know because no one was telling me when did you pick up the guitar then how old were you that was probably, well, probably in seventh, eighth grade. My brother oh, wow. was a guitar player, so there was always a guitar around. But, you know, having older brothers, you can't touch their shit. You know, totally. I get it. So right. I'd Territory. have to wait till he goes, he left the house to play the guitar. But I just rem- remember thinking, you know, no one is telling me, cr- critiquing my technique or anything. I, I right. can just play. And oh, I had man, a decent so ear, so I could just pick stuff out. Um and then, yeah, like late high school, I I, I kind of took um, guitar a little bit more serious. And I'm and, glad that you, you know, did. I know, me too. Although, <laughs> although I, you know, I still kind of wish I could like just chomp down a chart, and that that's a skill. You know, it's like it's like knowing a language. It, it's just totally. I I, I am kind of bummed, and my mom always gave me shit. She's like, see, if you had just right giving it a little bit more, a little totally. bit more time and energy. You know, I can I can totally relate to that because. You know, when I was playing piano, I was also resistant to mm. the language, um, mm. which is ironic. We'll get to later. But um, after that, then I started playing clarinet, 
sight reading again. Hmm. And I have this hmm. fond memory of Mr. Cher. We're on the stage, and I, I forget where we're playing. It was something Mozart, you know, because, of course, I was clarinet. And I was third chair. And I, I was practicing. I, was, I wasn't a bad clarinetist, you know. So I would read from the third chair. I'd be reading first chair. <laughs> <laughs> I was the only third chair. So like I was like, why am I, am I being punished? So I needed to play that part. It yeah. would be obvious that right. it was missing, right. you know, unbeknownst to me because I'm just in my realm. So right. I'm just sitting there reading it. And I remember him hitting the music stand and coming up, Christopher, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm reading first chair, but why? You're third because I can play it. And I, right. you know, right. it's a challenge. It's far away. I can still yeah. read the notes. You know, it was yeah. only quarter notes, whole note, eighth note stuff at that That's age, funny. you know, second or third grade. Um, and that led to the transition to playing bassoon, you know, because no one else is playing bassoon. Right. <laughs> let's try that. And I won't be able to read anyone else's chart, right. you know, so let's give right. Chris the bassoon. Um, <laughs> so this is like kind of like grade school this band. Is grade, yeah. Grade yeah. school stuff, band, concert band and blah, blah, blah. And I was still playing piano, you know, at home and just digging through the collection of records that my dad had. And that progressed from all the classical stuff to Deep Purple and Grateful Dead and the Beatles. I mean, I remember it, when I was 13, it was the first time I heard Led Zeppelin. Hmm. And I just freaked out. Mm -hmm. I freaked out. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God. Mm -hmm. And this is right when I started playing guitar. So my mother had always left a guitar in my room since hmm. I was born. Hmm. And I remember picking it up when I was like seven years old. And I was like, well, this is crazy. I couldn't figure it out. Sure. The tuning. But when I picked it up when I was 13, she we moved to another house she put that guitar in my room again. Hmm. And um, this time there was a book next to it with chord shapes. And and I figured out how to tune it. Um, and I started with just one string. And, and that time, too, I was Zeppelin, Grateful Dead. And, it was, and I was just one string in it. And then it was two strings. Then it was three strings, just playing by ear. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, power chord, because that wasn't in the book. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I was very autodidactic, even as a kid. I was like, I want to figure this out myself. I couldn't just take information people gave me and accepted for what it was i had to always dig deeper no matter what it was tennis lacrosse you know anything um art books music religion you know it was always very inquisitive and wanting to find out for myself so that led to me you know lacrosse practice whatever tennis come home do my homework i'm going upstairs boom boom, boom guitar and um i remember you know black by uh metallica mm -hmm. you know and the first time i heard grateful dad i was like this is terrible what the <laughs> crap is this skeletons in the closet you know yeah 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 and then the next day i put it on i was like friend of the devil is a friend holy god yeah. i was just like oh my god and that led to eventually going to 32 grateful dead shows no you know, shit see jerry garcia yeah i saw bob dylan with grateful dead Madison square garden um that was a huge thing my parents were always very supportive of of going to shows and they would drive into plymouth Dodge Caravan, yeah. you know, with the wood siding and oh, yeah. drop us off in the city. We also had a Midtown Direct from Maplewood. So we'd take trains in New York, go to Beacon Theater. Yeah. My friend's dad was a part owner of Beacon Theater. And wow. um, a good friend of mine, uh, Jamie Cher, her father, John Cher, was a guy that booked for all the Grateful Dead and all, you know, huge wow. concerts all over, huge concert promoter. So we had a lot of opportunities to go to shows and all my friends were really into that too, which also led to jamming together all the time. And me and my friend Josh and Pat had a band called King Hippo. You know King Hippo from Mike Tyson's Punch Out? He's oh, a big yeah. fat guy. You punch him in the stomach and his pants fall down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, we had King Hippo and we would do acid tests <laughs> because we were into Tom Wolfe and Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, of course, being so Grateful Dead. Yeah. So think about these 14-year-old kids getting together oh and God. wearing Viking hats and Yoda masks <laughs> and you know indulging in some, some liquid acid. <laughs> While our parents were at dinner in New York or whatever. And, um, yeah, we would just trip and just, just play guitars and jam and our friends would dance and we'd sing and just be super creative. It was Whoa. a really wild time through high school. So going, going into the city must have been, I mean, you know, I grew up maybe three hours away from, from New York and it couldn't have felt more distant like three hours oh, yeah. now you're just like whatever i'll drive there and i'll come home whatever totally yeah that's a distance. but new york was such a <clears throat> was such this unknown commodity until i guess it was college when we would start to play down there but oh wow yeah it was sure. it was just like so overwhelming in every way it felt so far away it felt yeah. so foreign but what an awesome 
I mean, to have that in, literally on your in, in your backyard. Oh, totally, literally. The, all of that art and culture. Yeah. Just right there, and and you can take a train and you know two stops in your fucking downtown or whatever. Like, holy shit, that must have been yeah, just I mean, awesome. One of my fond, it was and truly, and and I know that you understand. You know, being in New York, and you just you you're, you kind of have that mm-hmm. kind of thing as part of just who you are and this awareness, you mm-hmm. know, and. Um, I remember my first time at the Met was I was five years old and I saw La Boheme mm. and you know Italian Oprah. opera yeah just like holy crap and um, and my folks were very much into the arts like m- my parents were kind of kind of people that would like buy you stuff hmm. they were into experiences hmm. and 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 that was like going skiing being outside playing tennis climbing trees like when I was a kid we didn't watch TV it was like okay you're home from school now you go outside. Mm-hmm. And then when the sun comes down, that's when you come home. Right. So we lived right behind a park and all the kids were out and the skateboarding from Tony Hawk and Rob Roscop, all that stuff. Not mm-hmm. as cool bus used to skate in our town and like mm-hmm. crazy stuff. And then baseball, sports, the swings, the jungle gym, a lot of like very active play was a huge part um, to kind of counteract the indoctrination of education, which mm-hmm. my parents were very aware of and hmm. conditioning and stuff. And they wanted to expose me and my sister to things that were, you know, creative and doing things with our hands and mm-hmm. team building. And what is it like to be a leader outside of a school situation where you raise your hand, et cetera. Um, I always had the record player set up. You know, we always had music, all kinds of books around. And going to the city was a huge thing. Mm. It was what we would always do um, through the summer. And I mean, I saw Dizzy Gillespie when I was a kid. Mm. Um, we would go to jazz festivals in New York, huge art festivals. We were always going to, you know, I saw King Tut and Natural History Museum. And whenever there was an exhibit, my parents were like, oh, this is what we're doing. We're going to the city, get in the car. And then we'd go to the art festivals. We'd go see music. My dad would take me to the Vanguard or Birdland or, you know, mm. we'd go to Giant Stadium together to see sting with the grateful dead um it was a huge thing and then in high school okay you guys take the train in it's 25 minutes in midtown director we go to hoboken mm-hmm. up in hoboken take the path in in new yeah. york and um we used to go see the mammoth follies at the world trade center all the time it was this huge puppet show that mm. they always did in the bottom of the world trade center um and that was like our stomping grounds man and that's crazy you know, seeing the beastie boys in washington square park when they were dropping the bags of weed out you know oh into God. the park and before it was gentrified you right, know right. and and that's you know we would sneak out at like 11 o'clock at night when we were 15 16 take the last train in the city go into washington square park or go to freaking the limelight because wow. we had friends that could get us in the limelight 1415 you know oh my God. learning what electronic and early EDM and all that kind of stuff um you know or going to nightingales you know to um see God Street wine oh God Street you wine. Know? that's awesome <laughs> the freaking Princeton crew guys you know from yeah. upstate New York and the lakes and stuff like that and that's funny. you know so I haven't heard that band name in yeah no totally 20 and wi- years. And widespread <laughs> I mean I saw spin doctors with, yeah. with fish yeah when John Popper just got in the motorcycle accident and and Trey Anastasio wheels him out on stage is at the Roseland ballroom and whips off this cape that was uh-huh. on top of this guy in a wheelchair it's freaking john popper oh my god recovered from his motorcycle stands up and he's all you know oh playing the god. harmonica like what the hell's going on did you see any shows at the wetlands yes totally yeah. yeah and we went to the wetlands all the time and and i used to sit outside of the wetlands and play guitar huh. and um my senior summer i was outside the wetlands playing guitar and you know i had a little crowd and this guy comes up to me and goes do you want to be a famous guitar player I go, well, mm, what do you got? (laughs) Because I was like, I don't know. It's kind of cool, but it's a crazy life for famous people. And uh, he's like, we got this gig at at Woodstock. I'm like, at Woodstock? Okay. Started rehearsing this band. I'm like 17, this band, these like 40-year-old, kind of like has-been kind of guys, but... And the drummer was an Orthodox Jew, so sometimes he couldn't show up because mm. we had, you know, right. on a Sabbath or whatever, so right. he can't do anything mechanical. Anyway, we ended up playing Woodstock, Summer 99, and I was on the stage um, at Maxie Asker's farm uh-huh. and inside of the barn, and I was playing with Buddy Miles' band huh. because our drummer, being an or- we were supposed to, we got moved to a Friday performance, uh-huh. so I see him on top of the hill. He's got the shawl over him, and he's reading from the Torah. I'm like... Jebediah, what's going on? He's like, um, yeah, I, I can't play with you guys tonight. So I brought my guitar to the barn. Buddy Miles' band was playing in there. Hmm. And they had heard me playing somewhere else. So I come up on stage, 
that was an amazing moment. Mm. And I met guys from Apple Records, Warner Brothers. I met Melanie. Goodbye, Ruby Tuesday. And yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. know that she started the whole lighter thing. Oh, did she? Yeah. Well, they used to I guess she used to, would light a candle. Ah. And then people would light matches and then it get translated later into everybody's wow. doing the lighter and now it's cell phones, right? So she invited me to play on stage for her main performance. So I got to play with Melanie. That was ridiculous. This is 99. This is the Woodstock Yeah, but it wasn't. It's weird because there's video on YouTube about it, but it's like the off. There was like the big Woodstock 99. Mm-hmm. And this one was like more of like an intimate. I don't know. There's maybe like 10,000 people. It was on Maxi Asger's farm, yeah. the original farm. And a lot of it took place in the barn and they had the big stage. But it wasn't the one with like Trent Reznor. Right. And all that. Right. Was, Limp Bizkit yeah, or whatever. It was really bizarre. Um, but that, yeah, that was a huge seminal moment for me of like really, I mean, I was playing in bands through high school, like King Hippo and doing that. And I started playing bass with these like 60 year old blues guys in, um, New Jersey. And I was around 16. I had a three quarter size bass and I was like, Oh my God. Cause they were Mississippi Delta. Like these guys were the real deal. Uh. And it was 12 bar. And that just inspired me of like, oh my gosh. And this is what doing gigs is like. And then when I did the Woodstock thing, I was like, holy crap, this is this is what I want to do. And yeah. that, that, you know, eventually that, that led me to come to Arizona to um, go to school for music. Really? Okay, so you're playing music, you know, professionally in high school. Oh. Ish-ish. Ish-ish, yeah. ish, right. It wasn't like, yeah. yeah, it was one of the things that you did, but it was... Yeah, enough uh, money to, you know, keep my comic book collection going. Right, right. <laughs> um, were your parents, like, supportive? Like, was was a music career an option because you said, I'm going to go to school for it? No, I... You know, my dad was a Stanford grad. Um, my mom, you know, was very independent and, you know, came from a family of like, oh, you want to go to school for art? Mm-hmm. Well, more from her dad, her grandma, her mother was always very supportive. And um, they're like, you're going to have to pay for that yourself. So mm-hmm. my mom was 17, very independent. And um, while I was a kid, she graduated with two master's degrees in nursing and um, and as a nurse practitioner. And so that's something that I learned from my mom, like, and my family, like they work, we work hard mm-hmm. and we also find the time to do creative things. Um, I was really always into the creative things and my dad was more like, Hey, you got to work on your math. You got to, you know, blah, blah, blah. So when it came to a guitar and like I said, they wanted experiences for us. They weren't just going to buy me a guitar. And, um, they're like, if you want to do that, you're going to have to figure out how to do it. Well, my grandma being the blessed angel as she is, my grandma Arlene, I love her so much. She's not here with us anymore, but she was a huge influence in my life in many different ways. Um, she was like, Christopher, if you will go to guitar lessons, I will rent a guitar for you. And when you, if there's something you really want to do, then we'll, we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I started taking uh, guitar lessons in Milburn, New Jersey from this like old crazy rocker dude. who's all typing and pentatonics. And I was learning by ear. And like I said, with the grateful dad, I'd figured out, figured out pentatonic bar chord. I didn't know what keys were. I didn't mm-hmm. know notes and stuff like that. And I started with him and I had this crazy Ibanez Shrednar guitar with the locking nut. You know, mm-hmm. I, was all like, sure. I want the one that's shiny with flames and gold. Right, you know? right, right. And grandma would take me lessons. So that was great because I had just that time with grandma um, in the car to go to lessons. And she would go, you know, do her thing and then come pick me up, take me home. Um, and I had that acoustic guitar that my mom left in the room. Um my grandfather was uh, basically raised poor, um, adopted at four years old because his mother, Esther, left her abusive husband. Hmm. I didn't find this out until I was in lacrosse camp. I got hit in the head by a goalie because he hated me because yeah. I was being scouted by Hobart at the time. Because I was a goalie <laughs> and I was a monster. Yeah. I was a little monster. And I was being scouted. He knew it. We got in this fight one day, so I start running, throws a lacrosse stick. I ducked, le- I dodged left and went right while the lacrosse stick hit me right in the head, got uh. knocked out. I tell my grandfather the story, and he goes, and I, how I recovered, and he's like, oh, well, it must be that Irish blood. So I find out, going back to Esther and my grandfather, four years old, being adopted, Hill was the adopted name. Hmm. His birth name was Bagley. Hmm. And I'm like, what? How do we? And they're like, well, grandpa doesn't talk about that. So, you know, oh I was like, God. well, you told me my Irish blood. What are you talking about? And my friends, I would tell my friends, yeah, well, it's my Irish blood. And, like, and my Irish friends would be like, up yours, dude. You're not Irish for shit. You know, whatever. Mine has and Spanish, Swiss, whatever. Right. Maybe that. But Irish? So that birthed this whole thing. And like in this connection with my grandma and how important they were in my life, my grandfather. And finding out about um, Bagley, you know, from the lacrosse camp incident. Um, and then, so my grandfather 
coming from nothing, he developed himself into an unstoppable multimillionaire and creating a shipping business out of New Jersey called Jay Stanley and Company. And he had the foresight to invest in bonds and mm. stocks when I was a child, mm. when I was born. And um, I was made aware of this when I was 18. Mm. And, you know, we weren't ones to just squander. The first thing I did, I did was I took those bonds to cashed out a thousand bucks, went to the guitar store mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I had a choice between a wine red Les Paul studio that was like, Ugh, and this Ibanez ghostwriter. <laughs> and I was like, was it the Steve I one with the handle? <laughs> no, that's the, the gem. <laughs> Those are the gems. That was out of my realm. That was like, that was too crazy. Cause yeah. learning from the Floyd road, this is a pain, yeah. but I can't even string right. my guitar in right. 10 minutes. Right. And, um, I picked the Ibanez Ghostwriter, which I have to this day, and cool. it's kind of like a PRS meets a Les Paul meets the artist series that Schofield used to play, and I still use it to this day. Mm. Um, but once again, it was like, yes, my family helped me to get that guitar, but it was really like my choice. It wasn't like my parents were like, oh, here's your money, go do, you know, mm -hmm. and thank you to my grandfather and my grandmother for their, you know, foresight of giving us something to kind of prepare. And I invested it immediately in what I loved most to do. Mm -hmm. I didn't like go and party or go, go spend it on Grateful Dead shows or a bong or, you know, mm -hmm. what I was like, I'm getting a guitar. This is, this is the deal. Mm. Um, that's the guitar I took to Arizona. The reason that I came to Arizona is my uncle, um, Steve Thompson. Um, many people know him in the music community as Divo Carrillo. Because he eventually, you know, kind of he has a stage name and took the name of our great grandparents in their mm. honor. Um, him and my mom, when they were growing up, Palo Alto, and they grew up down the street from the Warlocks, oh, which would later become the Grateful Dead. Yeah, and they grew up down the street from the Dewey Brothers. Huh. So my uncle Steve, as a kid, was you know around these people all the time. Yeah. He eventually was playing guitar, bass player. Long story short, played with Jefferson Airplane. Was playing with Steve Miller Band, like this whole kind of thing. Mm. And uh, he met Sid, my aunt. They got pregnant. And that kind of changed his destiny of like, well, you know, I want to invest in my family. These guys are starting to do drugs. People are dying. It's a crazy mm -hmm. time, later 70s and or even early 70s, actually, and later 60s. And um, he transitioned out of being a musician. So I would go see him as a kid, and he'd have a freaking a Les Paul Goldtop number one signed by freaking Les Paul inside the, mm. the pickups, so like, mm. you know, whatever. And um, these old Yamaha guitars and just like whatever. And they'd be under the couch. I'm like, hey, Chris, you play these. And we play together. And he'd be like, oh, I remember when I was. So he was like a mentor mm. for me. Mm -hmm. And knowing his past history of what he'd done. And um, his effect also led to my cousin, Bobby Thompson, who was the lead guitarist for Job for a Cowboy, which was one of the biggest metal bands ever to get signed out of uh, Arizona. So Bobby was on the cover of guitar world magazine when he was 17 years old mm. holding a guitar like a sword and it says the future of metal <laughs> you know so my uncle steve divo carrillo i love you god bless you thank you so much for your influence and you know for me and for bobby and um you know he was a huge mentor and that was part of the reason i came to arizona he was out here yeah right? he was here with my my grandma um, Thompson and my grandfather was and my grandma's from the Carrillo side and I had four cousins here and Bobby, Amanda, Allie and, and Carrie and I was like I want to spend more time with them because mm. they were farther away from the Jersey family you know and I was like ASU is amazing with palm trees and like I heard they had a good music program and uh, that's what led me to Arizona in like 97. 97. Yeah. Let's take a break but we'll pick up there when we come back. Copy that. Happy New Year, so the story goers. Is there um, is there an umlaut in goer? I don't know. Uh, just wanted to say, hey, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for letting me take a little vacation in December. But stay tuned. I got a bunch of great conversations already in the books for 2023. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review, tell your friends about So the Story Goes. I love you. Okay, so it's nineteen, what mid nineties, ninety six, ninety seven, yeah. and you decide to enroll at ASU. You had some family out here, totally, and you're you you'd been scrumming it up in New York City as a high school kid. Yeah, what was your first impression landing in? I mean, did you come out and visit the school first? Yeah, we had come out to Arizona a bunch as like a kid, so mm -hmm. I kind of had an idea. But at at, at like you know coming at seventeen. Mm -hmm. And I graduated high school when I was 17, went to community college for a year, and then kind of a bunch of events, like, I need to go to school, because I was, like, wanted to be a rock star, and I was like, no, I, I, I want to make music and, and learn it. 
And uh, so coming to Arizona 17 was like in the springtime mm-hmm. and people aren't wearing clothes. Mm-hmm. It's very Cali. There's palm trees. I really saw it like, oh my God, this is a, a wonderland mm-hmm. party. And um, ASU at that time was, you know, shenanigans. So mm-hmm. um, was it difficult to get into the music school? Like, um, what was that process totally. like? It was, you know, because I didn't know notes. I mean, the first time um, when I started at ASU, Frank Vignola was teaching. And I remember going into the uh, guitar studio, which was just in his little room, which was more bigger than this kitchen. And there's like 17 guys squashing this room, trading licks and stuff. And they were playing a blues. So I could figure that out by ear. And, and it was just like playing. And Frank was really supportive. And then uh, Chris Champion took over the program, I think within six months of me being there. And he was very like... Wait, what do you mean you don't know where B flat is on the guitar? I'm like, I, yeah, I mean, how'd you learn how to do this? I'm like, by ear. You know, he's like, okay, well, here's a book. And he gave me the GIT book, mm. which is like freaking three inches large with just every composite minor craziness, you know, arpeggios and all that. And he's like, come to my guitar class, you know, register. I'll get you into that. Like, I wasn't accepted to the music program. Um, and, you know, after just being around great musicians, I mean, Raul Giannis was there at that mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. Um, Jacob Kohler was there. Um, Yanis, um, Sly, great piano. Um, Sam Palafian was around. Um, guys like Tony Malaby were coming through. It was just like, holy crap, just the level of players. And it was very humbling for me. And I looked up to a lot of them and a lot of them were like, Hey, Chris, come to my gig, do this, help me carry gear. Uh, Hey, you want to hang out and jam? Let's play. I think a lot of them recognized my natural ability, but I was definitely missing on that left brain of like, what key, what's this jazz tune? What's, you know, what mm-hmm. are all these genre specific things and how do you swing and play bebop? Um, hmm. And then one day, you know, I was in the room with Chuck and, and Chris and I was playing and Chuck's like, Chris, why, why isn't he in the music program? And Chris is like, well, I mean, I don't think he's really focused. You know, I think he's chasing after girls and being a rock mm-hmm. star, and not, right. you know, um, but that led me more to, uh, yeah, I was studying communications and, and a lot of music and art and um, recording at ASU West. And I eventually became uh, an interdisciplinary um, major, Bachelor's of Interdisciplinary Studies. So it basically fused. I had tons of credits for music. I took music history theory. Um, I did ensemble. That's how I met Adrian and Emerson from uh, Rosetta Verde. And... Um, and I was doing a lot of different music classes and, and journal studies, but it was super hard to get into the big band because hmm. you're with Don Moyo and they only had one spot and it was going to take me like a year and a half or to get, actually get a spot because hmm. you have to audition for those ensembles. And there's guys that were just way higher level than me reading and, and they're just destroying. Um, so I went for the bachelor's of Inter- interdisciplinary studies, which is fusing music and communications together for a degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any recollections of, of Tempe at that time? Like, were you going oh, to totally, the clubs? And- totally. Um, Adrian and Emerson and I, we met 25 years ago. And uh, we that was one of my first jazz combos with them. And we created a band called Green Rosetta. Because I lived with Emerson and Ben Barron. Ben Barron studied with Robert Spring. Amazing clarinetist. He's now playing Carnegie Hall twice a week. And Avery Fisher and touring the world, you know, playing Mozart's concerto. I mean, phenomenal. Uh, he's teaching in Manhattan school, etc. So I had him waking up at five in the morning, studying with Robert Spring, tonguing at 180, you know, while he's hmm. reading the New York Times and, you know, Jesus. doing Bach. And then I got Emerson in the room next to me playing Terry Bozo, Vinny Caliuto. He was doing yeah. double kick pedal metal crazy stuff at that time. And he was learning independence so he could do, you know, the clave with his left foot. And then he's got the, you know, mambo pattern, boom, boom, boom on his right foot. And then he's doing independence with his right hand. Jesus. And I used to fall asleep, literally, I would just lay down in front of Emerson's bass drum uh-huh. and fall asleep because huh. he was just destroying eight hours a day. And then you had Ben and me shredding our in the electric guitar. So we created a band together, Green Rosetta, me, Emerson, um, Ben, and Adrian. And we started, I was after it, we were doing gigs at the Vine. We played at Long Wong's, yeah. you know, and I was seeing Dead Hot Workshop at that yeah. time. The Meat Puppets were around, you had cool. the Pistoleros. You had Gibsons, you had that whole open lawn. It wasn't a city bank, you know, so all mm-hmm. the hippies are out taking the train in from Santa Fe or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we had the Celtic Cowboys. Frank was a huge influence on me because he was playing accordion and then guitar and harmonica. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? And um, a lot of people were very welcoming because I was like the kid. Mm-hmm. You know, I was young and I was I was Shrednar the Barbarian. And uh, I would play the sail in and I got into a band called Scribble. 
and we were doing stomp kind of stuff. So we had a stage set up with dancers doing the whole stomp thing with frying pans and mm-hmm. brooms. And then we mm-hmm. had the band that was with Eric Zhang and other local freak, um, and a bunch of other people and, and, you know, collaborating with Dumba and doing belly dance. It really got me into dance stuff. But yeah, the music scene at that time was crazy with Charlie booking Anita's hideaway. Mm. And, um, I started playing with drunken immortals in 2001 hip hop band. And that took off into a whole other thing of basically pioneering and helped create the Arizona hip hop scene, which now we see with universal music and universal music is handling the booking for all the huge festivals from everyone, Talib to Merce to everything. And I got to play with all those people, KRS one hmm. Africa Bombada sharing hmm. a stage with Africa Bombada playing the freaking Hollywood alley with, um, public enemy, hmm. you know, meeting hmm. flavor Flav and Chuck D and, um, I mean, meeting KRS, um, you know, black alicious, uh, Wu-Tang clan, and this goes back to being 14 years old, sitting on my porch in this, you know, middle class suburban neighborhood, listening to NWA right, right. and all this stuff where our parents are like, well, what the hell are you guys listening yeah. to? We're yeah. blasting it with our boom boxes and skating around <laughs> Maplewood, New Jersey. And here I am, you know, in Arizona performing with the Drunken Immortals. And then we're on stage with living legends yeah. and diggable planets and cool. freaking just, just mayhem. So that was great. You know, and meeting people like um, Trick Turner guys were around, you know, Steve from the JJ's. He was playing bass. He was, he was an inspiration. And um, Jimmy Eat World. Yeah. We did a show at the Bash on Ash in like yeah. 2001 with Womb, Jimmy Eat World, Trick Turner. You know, wow. and I'm just like, what the hell is going on? This is before MP3s and all the. Right, right. So Tempe was cracking, man. There yeah. Was, there was great rock. And then I'd go see Chris Champion and um, Jed Olson from Jigawatica. And Shazad, he had a band called One. These guys were just other level musicians, and um, all these jazz guys that are around now. I was yeah. going to see them at um, in where Gibson's was in Hayden Square, and uh, Belos and stuff, Belos, you know, yeah. and seeing Matt Marr, who's now a legendary um, Christian musician writer. You mm-hmm. know, he was a phenomenal jazz player, and Jacob Kohler, and all these guys were around playing and i'm just walk around tempe this is a freaking candy land go to the mm. cha- chuck box get a burger and then go see some crazy jazz with chris mm. champion and and whoever else and chuck was playing out a lot of that time and uh, brian ruth huge influence for mm. me he was um one of our combo directors with me and adrian emerson i, I love brian ruth he was just such a supportive because he saw me kind of outside of the jazz thing but he was still going to kind of kick my ass a little bit and he really inspired inspired me to explore sounds. You know, I was using chorus pedals and delays. People weren't doing that in jazz mm. combo. Mm. You know, and I'd show off my distortion pedal, and they're like, "Oh my god, here we go! What's this <laughs> right, guy gonna right, do?" I was like, right. "Come on, don't you listen to John Scopo, whatever." <laughs> um, so yeah, that was just a great time in Tempe '97 through early 2000s too. Yeah. Now, when did when did the kind of passion for flamenco come together? Um, so when I got to ASU and I said I was playing with this band called Scribble, um, we would rehearse in FAC, which was below the, the art museum at ASU. And there was this huge open dance studio room. And I was in there one day playing percussion with the band. And I met Bill Swayze, also one of my biggest mentors. He was a Detroit guy, you know, doing the Motown thing when he was younger, came to ASU. And he was working at uh, the dance department. And he was booking all of the um dance companies and he saw me playing he's like hey chris you want to play music for dance classes i'm like what and he's like just think about it you get to play drums you could play piano there's beautiful women everywhere and <laughs> you're providing the musical landscape for them to dance this turned into a whole adventure of of playing piano percussion i eventually set up my percussion on the left side piano on my right i would stick a stick in the vibrato pedal and comp harmonies while i was doing ostinatos with my left hand and I was playing dance festivals. I was playing piano for ballet. I worked for Ballet Arizona with Eve Anderson and accompanying dance classes and ballet etudes. Um, and I accompanied for Scottsdale Community College and organized, you know, national dance conferences for all the accompanists. And Bill Swayze and Rob Kaplan were huge influencers on me of, of like recording and accompanying dance. Um, and it was just huge for me because I was playing in all these different time signatures. I was expanding my musical ideas. I composed over 180 um, compositions during my time at ASU and beyond for dance performance. Mm. And that been, have been shown all over the world. Bam, Bram Stoker Vampire Film Festival in England. And I did some stuff for Nikon and Times Square. And 
It's a lot of crazy stuff for dance. I accompanied Twyla Tharp. Pima Bausch came to ASU. I was working with people that originated Stomp, like Sean Kern, and just legendary choreographers. Um, Michael Utoff. Um, I got to meet Moisha, you know, and uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov. And so this woman came up to me one day. She was getting her master's, and she's like, hey, my husband's starting a flamenco company, and we need a percussionist. I'm like, okay. Go over to his house, Chris Burton Hockamay really well-known uh, guitarist in this area. And uh, he's like, here, sit on this wooden box. I'm like, okay, now what? He's like, well, you're going to play it. <laughs> it was a cajon, mm. you know? I'd seen Future Man play it with Beto right. Fleck, but right. I was like, what is this thing? So an hour, this is the 12 count, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, you know, learning all these crazy rhythms. Within weeks, I was playing with a company of over 23 members, you know, 15 dancers, and we were putting out these crazy kind of Broadway-level theater shows with Carlo Flamenco, Martin Gaxiola, still a really good friend. And then that led to doing corporate gigs and all this stuff as like a home player. It mm. was crazy. And um, so that was the beginning of of actually playing flamenco. Mm-hmm. And then when was the first trip to Spain? Um, well, the first trip was in 2000 when I graduated college. And I toured all over Europe. Me and my friend Ben that I was telling you about, uh, Ben Barron, the clarinetist, we, we, I was there with three weeks of my family and I saw a flamenco show in Madrid and this was like kind of like this foreshadowing. I, I couldn't stop crying. Huh. I, I saw these people on stage and just the level of artistry and what they were giving physically, emotionally and spiritually on the stage was just out of control. And it was just a tableau. It was just a small, what we would consider like a bar gig or something, but no one's talking. Hmm. Everyone's just focused on them, mouths open, and I'm just like, oh my god, I was overwhelmed. I just, I can't even explain the experience. Um, so later, you know, and after touring Europe, blah blah blah, uh, in 2010, I took a trip with Chris Hakame, uh, his wife, and a good singer friend of mine, Olivia, and I was like, oh my god, you know. And I took percussion lessons at that time, and was kind of just getting into like flamenco. And I was like, I've got to return. And I was teaching at Notre Dame Preparatory High School for about seven, eight years and teaching all, all over Free Arts Arizona and doing a lot of outreach, battered abuse kids and working with nonprofit organizations and playing piano for ballet and working 12, 15 hours a day, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I need to take a sabbatical. And I went to Spain in 2011. My friend Johnny was like, hey, Chris, you should take this guitar. You should learn how to play flamenco guitar. I'm like, that's crazy. That That's just insane. It's such an amazing, I don't, I don't even know where to start. And then I took that guitar to Spain, and I met Juan Del Gastor, my maestro. Um, he's like a fourth-generation um, gypsy guitarist, and I had no idea his family was legendary. I had no idea that they created the Moron style of playing, which mm-hmm. is a definitive style of toque. There's Moron, there's Jerez, there's the Estilo de Paco de Lucia, which we hear with Vicente Amigo and the high-level technical proficiency. Um, and there's the Caño Roto style, which comes from Madrid. So I didn't even know that I was hanging out with Master mm. Yoda and mm. that he was carrying this lineage. And, mm. you know, unbeknownst to me, all that stuff, I was like, okay, this sabbatical is turning into, I'm selling my house, I'm quitting my job. Bob Powers, love that guy. He took my job at Notre Dame Preparatory High School. And um, I was off to Spain. That was an eight-year adventure, 2011-ish till, you know, before the pandemic. Hmm. And that just turned into, holy crap, I'm indoctrinated in being, I was brought into his family. Hmm. And his family was also Juana Maya, and she's a legendary, she's a living legend of flamenco dance. And he put me into her studio, and it started with me just sitting there and trying to clap, and she'd be like, no, Christopher, no. And I didn't speak Spanish, so she would say all these things, I had no freaking idea what she was saying. I was like a monkey at that time. And then I'd bring my cajon, I'd play, she'd be like, no. And then it was like, you know, I'd keep showing up to the door and she's like, hi, que cabrón, you know, this kid. She didn't know my name. She called me Juan or Pepe each day, it changed. You know, I'm like, Juana, soy Christopher, I'm the student of your freaking uncle, what the hell? So she was a great maestra, you know, and that she just really helped form me. In, and then eventually I started bringing guitar. No, no, no. And then it was like, yes, what's your name? After two years okay. playing in her classes. Como te llama, mijo? I'm like, soy Christopher Juana. She's like, oh yeah, claro. Like, don't call me Pepe anymore. And then it was Christopher, Christopher, when are you coming? Oh, Christopher, play this, you know. Um, and then I was with Jose Galvan, Juan Manuel Farquito. I played classes. Like Juan introduced me to the most legendary artists alive in flamenco. And these are the people that I was hanging out with all the time and around all the time and going to their shows or hanging out with their families. And 
being in Fiesta with them every night from 10 o'clock till 6 in the morning or some days it's a two, three day to Fiesta and freaking Tomatito walks in. And then I put my guitar down and I'm like, holy crap, Tomatito's here in a Fiesta or Vicente Amigo or Rubio de la Pruna or the the top musicians would come out and hang in fiesta because wow. that's where they would see the other artists and share their new ideas and and also help bring up the younger generation of yeah. of guys that i knew when they were 15 16 and now these guys are performing on stages all over the world so that's just a little bit of what was happening in spain as well as you know learning the language mm-hmm. castellano hablo castellano andalou and um that was happening at the same time i was learning guitar totally reorganizing my my brain Mm -hmm. and that was at 34 years old when i Hmm. went out there and when you got back then uh, a couple years ago you kind of resurrected rosetta verde or or totally or not resurrected but started it right yes you had the green rosetta totally exactly rosetta verde is like 2.0 right right and you know what's funny about that is that when i started playing chris hakame percussion he's like i think i want a bass player i'm like well you got to have adrian because his ears are so wide open and for me adrian is just like this hidden kind of weapon you know Mm -hmm. he's very chill and like you know he's not a super corporate gig guy he just come you know being the son of um joel robin and his brother julian like they are just exceptional musicians mm-hmm. and they have been since they were young and exposed to all kinds of music. So Adrian's just, he doesn't need charts. His ear is just fantastic. And mm-hmm. he's like my brother. So is Emerson. We're like, we have this connection. And, um, Adrian was playing with the Hakame company and so did Emerson eventually. And when I was going to Spain, well, Emerson took the percussion role mm-hmm. and was touring with the company and Adrian playing bass. So they had the vocabulary really well. So when I came back, they were like, what the hell have you been doing? Mm-hmm. You're playing buller. You, what the heck? Like, like flamenco puro. You know, I'm playing mm-hmm. stuff that they would maybe listen to records and Paco Lucia and Emerson's like, well, what the hell? Let's do this. And then tying in all like the rumba and Cuban music and stuff to just kind of expand rep. So there's some things that, you know, with American audience, sometimes the flamenco stuff is kind of challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But we find spaces that, yes, we can represent the art form as true to, you know, musical flamenco and then to rumba and kind of more flamenco light, they call it mm. in Spain. Flamenco light, <laughs> flamenco pop. <laughs> Accessible flamenco, right, I guess. Right. So, yeah, and that, you know, formulated Rosetta and yeah. playing that stuff together again as a trio. That's fun. I, I, I've seen you guys at the Womack and it, and sometimes you have a dancer. Sure. And uh, it really is a full body experience you know there's a visual aspect to it there's obviously very melodic very rhythmic Mm, um but that trio is killing thank you you know i want to say that i remember the first time that we played there and you came in and wes and um who else was there um bunch of yeah just like just 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 some of the guys that i really appreciate and respect in this community and you being one of them and um you know it's really great I, I know that you love it when you're playing a gig and something like that made me a little nervous when you guys came. <laughs> I'm like, is the sound right? Is the EQ right? How's the guitar? It's like, what should we play? What should we do? You know? And, um, cause I just have so much respect for a, a group of people. In this. I mean, I have respect for everyone, but there are certain musicians that I, re- I really know about them, what they're doing, what their goals are, what not expectations, but the level that they know things can be at. And yeah. so having you guys there that first night really was inspiring, you know? Well, it's and whenever you come great. through, it's not like tooting someone's horn or you know, but like really, and um, honestly, that night, that first night, and when you came in, it was like I really um, was like inspired to like, like okay, yeah, we gotta, I want to improve this. I'm gonna uh-huh. constantly, you know, show what we're doing, but also like really put passion and time into it. But I'm glad that you see, like, yeah, the flamenco is a whole other way of communicating. Mm-hmm. It's it's a language that we're interacting and there's things that I can just do that are totally unrehearsed. A lot of that is unrehearsed. Hmm. And Adrian and Emerson know the music well enough as well as me to be able to come along. And then when Martin is dancing, he's the conductor. So hmm. we're following him. And then when I sing, he's following me. And when I stop singing, then he's changing things rhythm- rhythmically or how phrases, and then he can do a call called the Yamada, boom, boom, da, da, di, da, 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 and we know there's a change coming. Hmm. So within flamenco, and that's what I was learning in Spain, is the art of improvisation. So it's not just like where we see a lot of flamenco companies in the States, mounted choreography, and it's mm-hmm. really like this is how it's going to be every night. And 
in Spain, yes, that exists too. But in the Tablao idiom, like we bring to um, Womack or something like that, is it's just a lot of his improvise. Hmm. And we'll pick a song for him. Let's go. What key we're doing? And let's do in this today. Let's and then I'll play hmm. different phrases that, you know. So are changing. you are you improvising lyrics as well? Um, sometimes I am, but the, the the thing that happens with the lyrics is that flamenco is like if there's a song, let's say there'll be all these disconnected little poems within mm. the song. Like, it's not like you're singing a song about love and then you have a chorus and then you sing another that all ties in. Flamenco is you can pick all these different little poems hmm. and then put them together however you want. And they might, one might be singing about farming for olives and then the next one is about um, this pain that you're feeling and your family died and when you return to the earth, the earth will sing for you. Hmm. Or you're going down the stairs and your wife is throwing vegetables at you because... Because <laughs> you're an asshole. <laughs> she thinks you're an asshole. <laughs> and then when you get to the bottom of the stairs, she's throwing your clothes out the window too. <laughs> and then you got to go to the shopkeeper to pick up the dress that you're supposed to pick up for her that you uh-huh. forgot. And then you forget the money to pay him. Uh-huh. So now you got to go another day. So going home is just... So there's, yeah, there's just all these crazy little, little poems that come together. Yeah, that yeah. all mix together within a different song form. Huh. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> well, and and an awesome way to kind of keep it fresh. You know, I had no idea the, the amount of improvisation that would go into a show. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, not seeing any charts on stage, you're like, oh, man, they must be just fucking right. thoroughly rehearsed. Well, but you, you would really appreciate this. So, like... In flamenco, you know, like do re mi, they're solfege, right? So if I go, hey, I can lo le cantare yo, D minor. I can le cantare yo, E7. Hmm. I te lo digo a mi madre, C to F. Hmm. So when I open, it's very much like blues. So you would sing something like, um, I como tiene mi corazón, D minor. I como tiene corazón, E7. You repeated the line twice. Now, just like blues, you wrap it up. Um... A la mare tiene un hija la calle. Close on the F. Ay no tiene perdón de Dios. And you resolve it to the A. Hmm. We're in Phrygian. And then you repeat that again and the, you close it. Hmm. So hmm. in flamenco, there's a lot of things that happen within a certain song form where you sing a line, then there's a space. So the dancer can rematar, which means to rekill. Hmm. They accent what you just sang. And you can leave that longer or not do it. It depends who you're working with and their understanding of the structure of Conte that exists. And then you close it, so then the dancer can close it, and Hmm. then they can do something else, and then maybe call you to sing another letra. Hmm. And sometimes you can extend them. And so when Emerson and Adrian are accompanying me, I might change the tono that I go to. Like, um, I might go do a letra that goes to C first instead of the D minor. It's not always going to D minor, A minor, whatever it is. Um, and their ears are open enough, and that's what a flamenco guitarist has to do. When you sit down in a fiesta, you have no idea where they're going to sing. You have no idea where they're from, and if they're from Triana, they might have a certain influence of Mm. of things they're going to sing. If they're from Cadiz, they're going to sing different things. If they're from Granada, they have songs from their particular Mm -hmm. area, Mm. like the Fandangos comes from uh, Huelva and Alorno, um, and the Fandangos de Eulalia, and all of those different places have tonos that they use. And as a guitarist, you need to hear the tono and play it for them. Hmm. Or they're just going to stop singing for you. Hmm. So hmm. as soon as you start going ding, 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 A, 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 they're like, hi, hi, hi. And they might go to C major. Oh, you're going to sit on the C major. Hmm. Everyone's going to do it differently. So that's crazy. That's that part of the improvisation thing where the melody implies a specific harmonic response. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So Adrian, he might not know it, but he can hear it. Boom! He's playing the root note of of the melody note. That that's I'm bananas. Totally. It's, I mean, that's, just like, that's that language coded. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. And then the dancer needs to know that language so well that they know how long their phrase of just doing marcaje or when they're gonna add the specific rhythmic thing to yeah. close the letra. Right. Because I'll extend it. Like you could do. Um, I tengo una parte en mi alma, 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 alma. Mm-hmm. Rather than tengo una parte en mi alma, tengo una parte en mi alma, tengo una parte en mi alma. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so you can play with that and then they know, oh, I've got to wait here. He's extending mm-hmm. it. And as well as you heard how it's descending down the Andalusian cadence from A minor to G to F and then resolves on E or D minor to C to B flat to A. Mm-hmm. So all of that 
is within melodic harmonically, then there's rhythmic responses to each little part and when they close or when they start or in the middle of Jesus, man. Yeah. (laughs) Good God. I'm like exhausted. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Yeah, there it is. (laughs) Good God, man. Well, uh, continued success. Uh, those are great guys, Emerson and and Adrian. I agree. Thank you. And, uh, love, love seeing you out playing and, and, uh, uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 it, it, and you know, it's unique. Like there's not really much of that happening in this state, in this town. So to, to be able to carve out a living in that is, is really impressive and inspiring too. So thank you, Brian. You know, I think that, I, it's been a challenge, yeah. But but it, but also I you know, and I say this every fucking podcast. But this community, this musical community, is just so deep and so supportive. It um, is, and we're so fortunate to to have the venues that see the have the vision. Agreed. And we have the players that can just come in and assassinate, and then we get to go home and toast, have a drink, and, and you know, like what a fucking life we get. Totally, I agree. And you know, touching on what I said earlier, coming to ASU. Um, there's just countless guys in this community that inspire me mm-hmm. and whether they know that I'm paying attention, wh- whether they know that I'm paying attention to them or not, like I am. Mm-hmm. And there's certain people like we were talking about Mario Mendeville earlier and just the way that he is, that he approaches playing, that he approaches showing up to a gig, the way that he treats people off the gig. Yeah. When it, we're not even talking about music. Um, people like Felix signs, um, they're just gentlemen, yeah. you know, and they're they're old guard guys like yeah. Todd Shubo we were talking about, and they're not just people that we look up to professionally and for what they accomplish musically, but it's just or Greg Warner, you know, just the way he's like, yeah. hello, he's very much a gentleman when he approaches yeah. you to anyone that you're with, he's very kind, and these guys kind of all have those attributes, and um, it's great, like you're saying, to be part of this community where there's some there's just high level musicians. And, um, some people are a lot of high, more high level people really understand or know, mm-hmm. um, we, you and I might be aware of it. Some other people might, might not, <laughs> um, but you know, there's just, you're right. And just the venues and the places that we could find ourselves. I mean, with yeah. the hotel stuff, the corporate work that's here that can really help us, you know, be a working musician mm-hmm. and then also pursue being an artist. Mm-hmm. It's just really great, man, because the things that have changed in New York, the things that have changed in oh, Austin, God. the things that have changed in LA, L.A., and we've had this huge influx of guys coming from the South, mm-hmm. you know, the guys that grew up playing in Baptist churches and that whose ears are just so, the Gaines Brothers, mm-hmm. oh my God, what a blessing to have those guys here, mm-hmm. seeing what they're doing, just their ability mm-hmm. um, to play and all these new drummers and guys that are coming in. Which is exceptional high level of yeah. just killing, yeah. You know, and seeing like, are they going to break the drum set? Like, <laughs> like seeing some of these guys yeah. and um, no, it Buddy is. Banks. You know, yeah. it's just like whoa. The, and I love going out. Like we were talking about, I love going to see um, Vinyl Station on a Saturday, or when I find out that Gaines Brothers are at. at um, you know, wherever they're playing cashmere is, I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to have an experience. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to drink my water. I have a nice scotch. And not be trying to talk to everybody or pick right. up shit, whatever. Like, I am here to see some freaking great music. You yeah. Know? Or at Char some nights, you'll get these guys in there. And Yeah. Yeah, we are really blessed here in Arizona. Very fortunate. And, Brian, I just want to say thanks so much for having me. Um, of course. And welcoming in your home. And, of course. You know, Glad you're um, here. Among the musicians that we're talking about, you're one of them. You thanks, know? man. And I appreciate all that you do and, and the people that you organize and get together to fulfill your your dream and mission, like Adam Armijo, that's another one I was yeah. saying. He was uh, at the Walmart too that first night with you and Wes, and you know you're playing with guys like that and Todd, and and um, you know sharing your love and art, you know, and you're doing it all over the place, and you know, so I really appreciate you inviting me and taking the time, and much respect and, and thanks, brother, for what you're doing and what you share with all of us. So. Thanks, man. Of course, that's very sweet of you. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> you're my boy, man. <laughs> One thing that we we kind of glossed over the 2000s, the sure. 2000 to 2010, and I did a little bit of research on you mm. uh, oh, prior to oh, you coming by, <laughs> and I had no idea that you were part owner, uh, part owner of Lucky Dragon. Yes, and I I missed Lucky Dragon. I guess because mm. I arrived in 2003. 
Oh, um, sure. That was like the tail end. Yeah. And, but I, I had heard of it and, and I w- was a fan of Johnny Chu's totally. restaurant fate, which was downtown. Yep. It was right by where I live. So we were there like totally. at least once a week Nice. and I had heard stories of, of lucky dragon and, and what made you get into that business and what was that experience like? Uh, okay. Great question. Um, so I always had an affinity for food and cooking and I worked in kitchens since I was young and pizzerias and all kinds of stuff and coming from being in the kitchen with my mom all the time, etc. And I was working for Sammy Subs at the time, which was right next to Topps Liquor, you know, up on Farmer University. Mm-hmm. And down the way was the Lucky Dragon. Mm-hmm. Me, I met Johnny Chu and me and Adrian Emerson found a home there doing these improv nights and bringing Andy Gross. And there's another beast, yeah. and Andy Gross. And <laughs> And doing all the stuff, and Johnny was really into live music, and then um, it was kind of like they didn't like him there because he was too loud, and you know, yeah. there's all kinds of stuff going on over there. So, <laughs> me and Adrian engaged in a conversation. Well, what do you need to do to open up? He's like, I want to open another place. Blah blah. Hey, let's become partners. Boom, we opened up a restaurant near the Gold Bar in Southern McClintock. And it was, you know, Asian fusion. So there's a French influence, obviously with Vietnam, Vietnamese influence, and it mm-hmm. was me, Tony Ban. Um, he owns some restaurants now downtown, sushi restaurants like Moira. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moira. And um, so we, you know, partnered up and we got this fusion thing. We got Tony, Johnny, me, and Adrian. And um, we were doing a lot of the booking at our jazz night. We had a poetry night. We had the most legendary drum and bass night ever. Really? That was like the launch in Arizona, a drum and bass and jungle. And we had Dega, Dega. And, there's all these Arizona legends hitting it hard, and we, we stopped opening for lunch. We'd only open up till, you know, whenever till 2 in the morning. And, of course, we were misfits once again in the neighborhood. It was, like, really just mayhem. But we did Art Gallery, too, and we won New Times, like, Best Art Gallery. We won Best Chinese Restaurant, Performance Venue. We had freaking Wu-Tang perform wow. at the Lucky Drink. <laughs> Jesus. You know? And Drunken Moors and all that. And we also had all the rock thing. We had Five Speed there. Hmm. You know, when they were blowing up around the time Jimmy Eat World was blowing up early 2000s. Um, so that was just a crazy adventure. And that was before POS, you right. know, systems. That was like, oh, the beer delivery is going to be here at 8 in the morning. So I'm there at 8 in the morning. Well, it's 3 o'clock. They're still not there. There's no yeah. cell phone to call right. them. Right. You know, the Motorola Flip came out right after 9-11. So... Or the Razor. We had the Nokia before. You couldn't even text whatever. It was mayhem. <laughs> dealing with Cash and with Johnny. He's yeah. in eccentric and so am I. Yeah. And, you know, Adrian is another level and, and Tony. <laughs> and um, so that, yeah, that was that was the mayhem period. <laughs> and I was working at ASU at the same time Yeah, because we were getting started and just getting as a business. So there wasn't a huge amount of money coming in. Right. And, um yeah, it was just exceptional though. But like to have a house for our friends to come play and right. do kind of stuff and have good food. It was it was a wild ride, man. Ugh, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. I on some do. Of those I nights. wish too. I mean, it, there was just some times in there we'd have what is his name Ralph Michael Brecken. He's kind of like a postmodern um, or modern kind of um, Warhol kind of guy, hmm. and he was huge. He was showing art with us and. You know, we'd have these gallery shows and we, you know, we sold some paintings out of there, but it was great to have the fusion of jazz poetry night, still have jazz, mm-hmm. you know, and we'd have Brian and, and all the jazz guys from ASU and, and that were local at that time coming to play and the poetry nights so that involved all the hip hop scene. And we got the drum and bass guys and we had music seven nights a week. Wow. So it was just shenanigans of every different genre that you could think. Wow. You know, it was like an early model of like what Crescent is now, where right. Crescent's like, oh my God, is there a day you don't have a show? Or right. is there a day that you don't have two bands or three right. or five or six different shows? It's just right. insane. And that's when Charlie was doing the neatest thing at the same yeah. time. So we were learning a lot from them and, and from Charlie and from everybody that was doing stuff down on Mill. And we brought it down to Southern and McClintock. God knows why. You know, uh-huh, right. <laughs> downtown at that time was like you go to Van Buren, right. you know, in that area near Crescent for. Lord knows what right. you know? <laughs> <laughs> things that come in small bags or you know streetwalkers you know it's a totally whole yeah. other thing that's why we downtown picked, Phoenix know, at that D. time was it was a whole other whole other bag so yeah. we had our little niche down there yeah <laughs> well so I mean but so that was an experience and you're like thank you very much but I'm not sure I want to do that again yeah it, it became well I wouldn't say that I wouldn't want to do it again, but at that time I was really realizing my potential as an artist and yeah. wanting to play music. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not leaving the restaurant until four in the morning. And then at that time I was um, a medical aide. I was working for a quadriplegic man and I would have to be at his, he was the head of the blackboard at ASU and I would show up in the morning and get him up 
catheter whole Whoa. thing transfer him to a chair shower him comb his hair brush his teeth transfer yeah. him back to his wheelchair dress him Holy feed shit. him you know it took three to four hours and i was doing that from you know five to nine in the morning to get him ready for work and i was doing that to keep up with bills like i said we weren't getting a lot from the restaurant I wasn't making a lot of money as a musician at the time and I was still at ASU, not making a decent living, but um, and that's when I started working with autistic kids and, and teaching and finding all these other avenues because the restaurant just, it was more like a um, passion. Yeah. It wasn't a financial right. uh, thing at that time. And I was booking all these other people and doing all that. I would squeeze, you know, Rosetta and whatever into a couple times a month or do the host the poetry night. But I'm like, Jesus, I'm working like 27 hours. I'm sitting here for a beer delivery. Like, yeah, I can practice guitar, but I'm, you know. Right. I'm going to be late to whatever. It just became a labor of, oh my God. Yeah. And all um, consuming. Yeah. And it was, of course, like Johnny's like, this is my life. This is my passion. He was going to continue. And right. for me, it was like, okay, taking past experiences from knowing kitchens and working in hospitality, doing all that kind of stuff and helping with the booking and the art galleries and all my connections with ASU and the jazz guys and all that thing was connecting. Um, but it was just, yeah, just so much work. So mm. when I finally got out of the restaurant, it was like 2004, 2005. And then that's what Johnny, he said, opened up fate and he's had a bunch of successful projects since then. And then that's like, okay, freeze. Now I've got time yeah. to really focus on what, uh, what I want and yeah. developing. How do people find out about Rosetta Verity? What's the best way for them to see where you're playing and know? Oh, good question, man. Thank you for asking. Um, you can go to my Instagram page, which is at Crow Music. And um, there's also at Rosetta Verde, R-O-S-E-T-T-A, Rosetta Verde. Um, I'm be coming out with a website and stuff, kind of. Soon. That's the goal, yeah. um, you know. And you can DM me too. <laughs> slide into DM my DM me. <laughs> slide into my DMs, you know. So we got the at Crew Music, we got at Rosetta Verde, and you know, check the Womack. That's usually yeah. where we're showing the ensemble right now. And um, that's so a pretty steady Wednesday hit, no? Or um, you know, is Steve Heavenstone, let's talk about our musician who's like Come really on. just doing the thing and, and on multiple capacities as a, as a producer, promoter, musician, and a really good friend. I've known Steve since he was 14 when he started coming out here and just so awesome to see what he's turned into and how he brings the community together. And yeah. we just worked out, um, doing the Womack like every third Thursday. Okay. You know, and study there with Bradford holding it down the, yeah. at the Mac and shout out to the Womack. people come out and sort the support the Womack. There's great music going on there. Of course Brian is there. Um, we've got Brady Lilly, we've got West John is there. Um just it's, bunch it's of it's a good representation artists. of the of the community yes. for sure. And some some great drinks too. Um you know, oh. Bradford just does a great job of running it and Hannah and all, all yeah. the Ladies behind the bar are just killing it. They got a great team over there. I always feel really supportive over there. So, yeah, Womack into house, Steve Heavenstone, check them out. Shout out. <laughs> well, Christopher, appreciate your time. Thank uh, you, Brian. Really happy to have a moment to have this conversation with you, and and me too. Grateful to hear uh, your story. I had I I knew about ten percent of what you told me, so <laughs> I, I learned something today. I learned a lot about you too in our conversations <laughs> throughout the day. So. Uh, continued success, brother. I'm sure I will see you across the street at the Womack sooner rather than Ole, later. Ole, muchísimas gracias. Un abrazo. Saludos a ti y a todos. Gracias. There you have it. <laughs>